All right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn in that Bible to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to continue walking through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 today. So our text is going to span the chapters, just so you know that the numbers that you see in your Bible aren't inspired there. So they're they're kind of artificially put in there. So we're going to go from Mark chapter 2, verses 23, through Mark chapter 3, ending in verse 6. And the title of this sermon is the way of Sabbath. Um, We're going to see Jesus have this interaction and this conflict with religious leaders over this issue of the Sabbath. And what I want to put before you today is that as God's people, we were made to delight in the rest that we are designed for. You and I were designed for a Sabbath rest, and we are made to delight in that. And so we're going to look at kind of who gets to define this and how do we do it. Um, And so we're going to I'm going to read the text in its entirety. I'm going to pray, and then we're going, to, we're going to get to work. So hear now God's holy and inspired and life-giving word, starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gift of Sabbath that you have given to us, where we confess that you are Lord of Sabbath, but we often want to to make the Sabbath in our own image. Help us to understand how you've designed us to rest, and teach us how to delight in that rest even this morning. Father, we pray that you would be magnified in our hearts and minds. Holy Spirit, attend to the preaching of this word so that it is not uh, just me talking and empty words being spoken on a stage, but that it would be words that are a gospel balm to the hearts of God's people. Lord Jesus, we love you and we pray all of this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. There's a man named Matt Frazier, and he won the CrossFit Games five times in a row, making him the, the fittest man in the history of the world and the most decorated CrossFit competitor in the history of the sport. And if you don't know what CrossFit is, go find somebody who does it, and they will be happy to tell you all about it. Um, but if you don't know what CrossFit is, it's the sport of fitness. Um, it, it burst on the scene about 20-ish years ago. And Matt Frazier was this guy that had a background, in a very high-level background in uh, Olympic lifting. And so he got injured, could no longer compete in Olympic lifting. And so at a young age, he decided that he was going to start this new CrossFit thing. And because he was such a highly accomplished Olympic lifter, his first ever time in competing in the CrossFit Games, he came in second place. 
It's a big deal. And the guy that he lost to had just won the, the CrossFit Games three years in a row, and he was retiring. So Matt Frazier thinks, all right, I'm going to keep on keeping on, do what I've been doing. I'm going to come back. I'm going to win the whole thing next year. So Matt Frazier goes about his stuff. He, he does what he does. He comes back to the CrossFit Games next year, and he gets second place again. Now, this was much to his dismay because Rich Froning, the guy that beat him last year, had already retired, and Matt Frazier thought, I'm the best. I should have won. What on earth went wrong? And so he went back to the drawing board, and he's, he's thinking about how do I train, how, how much I'm going to outwork everybody, I'm going to hustle. And then he got this piece of advice that changed his life. Somebody said to him, look, at this level of the game, at this level of the sport, you're not going to outwork anybody. Everybody's working hard. If you want to have that competitive advantage, you need to start prioritizing your rest and your recovery. So Matt Frazier went like a maniac, stripping everything out of his life that didn't help him recover. He turns off his phone at 8.30, no blue light before bed. Um, he bought a sauna, put it in his backyard, a cold tub. Everything in his training was now focused on not just working hard, but how can I recover from that hard work to make me as successful as possible? And then from there on, Matt Frazier won the next five consecutive CrossFit Games, making him the most fit man in the history of the sport. You see, we as people were designed to rest. We were not designed to work, 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 grind, grind, grind. We were designed to rest and to take breaks. We were designed to Sabbath. But there's a lot of confusion about the definitions and where that comes from. So today in this sermon, I want to look at two things. I want to look at how was how the Sabbath? Where does that design come from? And then the second thing I want to look at is, well, now we know what the design is, how do we then begin to move towards delighting in that? So the first thing I want to look at is what is that design of the Sabbath? And the first thing that I want to point out <clears throat> is that this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees is one that it's an issue of authority. See, before we even get into the text, we have to understand that the design of the Sabbath was to reflect the creative nature and the redemptive work of God and His people. So what we see is Jesus and His disciples were going along, they were continuing their ministry, walking along, and they were going through the grain fields. And the disciples, it, it says, began to pluck the heads of grain. And implicit in that is that, well, they're hungry. They, they want a snack. So I'm going to pause there really quick and ask kids in the audience, kids in the congregation, What's your favorite snack? What's your favorite snack, kiddos? Yes, Anna. Yogurt with jelly in it? I like that. Yes, ma'am. Chocolate? That is an excellent snack. Any other other snackers? Yes, Lucia. Tomatoes and mozzarella. That is the most Italian answer that you could have possibly said. Well done, Carissa. Yeah, and when do you get these snacks, kids? When do you get your chocolate, your yogurt with jam, and your, your tomato with mozzarella? When do you get your snacks? You don't know? Okay. Normally, I would say, yes, Anna. Well, any time of the day when you're hungry. That's nice. Yeah, so typically we eat when there's a need, right? You don't just eat when you're not hungry most of the time. You eat when there's a need. You snack when you're hungry. And that's what we see the disciples doing. Ministry's hard work, y'all. Ministry's hard work. You get tired. You get hungry. So you got to sometimes stop what you're doing. you got to pluck some grain out of the, out of the ground. you got to eat it. But this bothered the Pharisees. Why did a simple human need bother the Pharisees? Why did stopping and eating a snack bother the Pharisees? Well, because the disciples were doing this on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees say in verse 24, you're not doing, you're doing what's not lawful. So what's the deal? Why are they doing something unlawful? 
the Pharisees are appealing to a level of authority to determine that. Now, that begs the question, what authority? What are they talking about? Because every good Jewish person, like the disciples, like the Pharisees, they would have known that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that was God's authority for his people. That was God's instruction for his people. And in that, in the Torah, there's a a very clearly defined element of Jewish life. It's the fourth commandment. You see it in Exodus 20 and, and Deuteronomy 5. Six days you shall work, but the seventh is a Sabbath under the Lord. Stop working. Keep it holy. You, your servants, and everybody in your household, your animals. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh you rest. And what we see as we examine the Old Testament, when we look at Exodus and Deuteronomy, that that Sabbath command it was rooted in two different things. If you look at Exodus, when, when you look at the fourth commandment there, God says, keep the Sabbath. Because six days, in six days, the Lord created everything. And on the seventh day, he rested. So in Exodus, the Sabbath command is rooted in the fact that God is the creator of everything. But then if you look in Deuteronomy, it says, six days you shall work, seven, on the seventh you shall rest. Because remember, at one time, you were slaves in Egypt. And when you were a slave, you have to work all the time. But remember, when you were slaves in Egypt, I redeemed you by my hand and outstretched arm. So on the seventh day, you rest because you were once slaves and now you're not. And so the Old Testament gives, it gives some Sabbath commands, don't work. But why is this particular thing bothering the Pharisees? It does not say in the Old Testament, don't snack. That's not an Old Testament law necessarily. But I will say, and this is for the parents, there's a grain of truth in what the Pharisees say. There is a grain of truth. While it doesn't say in Exodus uh, 20 and Deuteronomy 5, it doesn't say don't pluck wheat on the Sabbath, there is kind of implicit in some of the other discourse about the Sabbath where you shouldn't do things like work in your harvesting and your reaping, as it says in Exodus 34. When God gives his people manna in Exodus 16, they're not supposed to gather on the seventh day. On the sixth day, they're supposed to gather enough for two days, so you're not supposed to kind of get your snacks together in that sense. But, but what we have to understand when we look at this is that's not really what the Pharisees were appealing to. They weren't necessarily appealing to these kind of Sabbath discussions in the Old Testament. What they were appealing to, what they were saying is not lawful, is what's called the Mishnah. It's the the rabbinic oral tradition. And in the Mishnah, they have 39 categories of work that are prohibited on the Sabbath. And what the disciples were technically doing here was reaping, which was technically against the law for the Mishnah. And so the Pharisees are somewhat at odds with the Old Testament in the sense that they're saying, look, the disciples aren't going by our traditions, and they're not really appealing to the depth of kind of the Old Testament law. And so there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a, a conflict here. And the thing that we have to understand as we look at this conflict, The thing that we have to understand as as we examine this is that Sabbath isn't a glitch. Sabbath isn't something that something got messed up and so we have to do it. Sabbath is the design of the program. And it's not just because the Pharisees said so. It's not just because their tradition says so. It's because God, as the creator of everything, created his people. God, as the creator of everything, created work. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created people and he said, go to work. Be fruitful, multiply, make culture, have dominion over the earth, land, and sea. Name the animals. Work isn't a result of the fall. 
And so God in his creative goodness says, go to work, but also rest. Working too much is a result of the fall, not working at all. And so when Jesus is dealing with this, he's not worried about so much what does it mean to work and not work. He's more worried about what is the character of God and what authority are we appealing to? Are we going to appeal to God's word or are we going to appeal to the traditions of men? And so when Jesus responds, when Jesus responds to the Pharisees, look what he does. He doesn't go back to Exodus 20. He doesn't go back to Deuteronomy 5. He doesn't go to Leviticus or Numbers or any other aspect of the Torah. He goes to 1 Samuel 21. And he says, haven't you read what David did? He went into the the tabernacle. He ate the bread of the presence. He did what was only lawful for the priest to do. And he did it, why? Because he was hungry. And those who were with him were hungry. And so Jesus also doesn't appeal to the Torah. He appeals to the greatest king in the history of Israel. And he doesn't say, look, David had a better interpretation of Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 than you. He said, David, God's anointed man, God's king for his people, had a need. And so, in a sense, David's need in that moment superseded the regulation that God had given for the priests. So, when we're talking about the Sabbath, we're talking about an appeal to authority. Who gets to decide what we do and how we do it? So, he's referring to David not as a better interpretation, but as a precedent that the Sabbath was made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was meant to bless God's people, not to bind them unnecessarily. The Sabbath was meant to be an act of restorative, recreative rest for God's people, not something that was going to make them a slave. God had already freed them for slavery. And so Jesus, as he appeals to this action of David, is appealing to the greater authority that David had as the king. And so Jesus, again, isn't quibbling over interpretation. What he's doing is he's saying, God's man is going to be the way that God's people are blessed. Because it's not that David took the bread and ate it all for himself. It's he took it, he ate it, and he gave it to those who were with him. So this act of Sabbath violation was really an act of blessing for God's people at that particular time. That's why Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man and not the man for Sabbath. And so when we think about Sabbath, When we think about that idea of being designed for Sabbath, we need to think about not just you can't do X, Y, Z. That's the wrong framework. The the, the right framework, I would think, is you don't need to do X, Y, and Z. Because again, when we look at that appeal to authority, when God designed his people, he said you're going to take a break every every seventh day, you're going to rest. Because why? He's the creator. You don't have to create anything. He's the redeemer. You don't have to redeem yourself. You don't have to work because you don't need to work because God in his goodness and his blessing provides everything that you need. And so the Sabbath isn't about you can't do something. It's about you don't need to do something. And so God, when he commands for us to observe the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments, is not something to say, you better do this or else. It's more of a, you don't need to do this because I am enough for you. So when we stop one day a week, When we stop one day a week, when we set aside one day, it's not about just displaying a collective obedience, but it's about an external act displaying an inward devotion and belief that God really and truly is enough, enough to bless us, enough to keep us, 
enough for us in our need. And so everybody, non-believers and believers alike, kind of intuitively understand this, right? Like you understand, everybody gets that when you don't get any sleep, it's the worst. Everybody understands that you have to work and then you have to rest. Everybody kind of intuitively gets that. Your body can't function if you don't sleep, you don't rest. But for God's people, as God's people, there's a a, a call for us, a, a, a picture for us to orient and to shape and to mold our lives in such a way that reflects this belief that God is sufficient, that God is enough, that we can actually stop working and we can take a break and rest, right? And so, again, even as God's people, we understand that your life is dictated and the rhythms of your life are dictated by various authorities. Or kids, you, you snack when your parents say you can snack. I don't believe that you just snack whenever you want. But your parents get to dictate when you get to get your snacks. Students in college, you go to class, hopefully, when you're supposed to go to class. Right? You don't just arbitrarily show up at classes that aren't yours. And hopefully you're, you're not, you know, just not going to class that well, you're supposed to be. You know, and, and adults in the room, you understand that you have a job. You have to get up at 8 o'clock or, or whatever, and you have to, I don't know what time you all get up. Uh, you, you have to go to work, and if you don't go to work, if you don't kind of maintain that rhythm, you know, there's consequences. And so we understand, as God's people, that our lives are ordered by different authorities. But the question really becomes, like Jesus and the Pharisees, what happens when those authorities are in conflict? What happens when those authorities are in conflict? Because here's the thing. In our sinful nature, we want to decide what we want to do when we want to do it. And so there's a sense in which observing the Sabbath, and I don't want to, I'm not going to get into the nitpicky of what that looks like and what that means, but there is a sense in which our culture doesn't appreciate the Sabbath. You know, every time, every Sunday I drive in here to the school, and the Morgantown hockey rink is just full of people playing hockey. And, and I, don't, I don't dislike hockey. I don't really understand it. Um, there's nothing wrong with playing hockey. But every time I see that, I see a culture that values doing something when they want to do rather than doing what God has designed us to do. And so what we have to ask the question, the question that we have to ask is, are we going to allow God to be our ultimate authority to order our lives? Are we going to guard and protect the Sabbath day to worship as God's people because He is the Creator, He is the Redeemer, He has kind of set the pace for what it looks like to, to rest and to worship Him. And so we have an obligation and an opportunity to set aside one day to show that we believe that God is this authority and that He is enough for us. And in that, I would implore you, you need not be a slave to a man-made tradition but you do get to be the servants of the God who made you and redeemed you. And so all of this conversation is great. We are designed for the Sabbath. I get all that. So what does that practically look like? How do we do that as, as God's people in the 21st century? And, and I think the answer to that is by learning to delight in the Sabbath. So that's, that's the second point in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Learning to delight in the Sabbath. And I, I just want to say at the outset, Delighting in the Sabbath is not so much a theological conviction. It's not just a, a theological belief, but rather it's, it's a posture that results in a practice. So as we see, in, as the, the narrative goes on, there's an escalation. 
Jesus' disciples are picking from plants, and now we get to see the escalation of what happens to people on the Sabbath that need something. And so as we go on, there's this logical connective in the account that it's likely that this is the same day after they walked in the grain field, Jesus and the disciples go to the synagogue. And at this particular synagogue, the same one in Capernaum, where he healed the man on the Sabbath with the unclean spirit in chapter 1, there's not just only a man with a withered hand there, that Mark says, but there's also Pharisees there that are doing what? They're watching him. Now, undoubtedly, at this point, the Pharisees are, are well-versed in who this Jesus character is. They know what he's done. And so they're watching him. And there's a very particular word there in the Greek. And it's not just like they're casually observing him. They see what's going on. They're watching with, with malintent. This word is used five times in the Gospels and Acts, and every time the author uses it by somebody that has a a bad intention. And so the Pharisees are watching, what is this Jesus going to do? They want to accuse him. And so at at a certain level, we have to understand that there's always going to be this conflict and tension between the kingdom of God and the culture around it. The Pharisees are proof positive of that. And so Jesus understands that, and he says to the man with the withered hand, Come up here. And then he asks the question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do bad, to save a life or to kill? Jesus was going to use this man as an object lesson. Now, kids, I want to take another break, and I want to ask you a question. This one might not be as easy to answer, but have any of you ever gotten hurt? What happened? Okay, maybe you were play fighting with your sibling and it escalated. Yep. Ooh, fell off the monkey bars and broke your arm. Oh, what's up? What's that, Judah? Got thrown off a hill? Oh, man, that sounds like a rough day. Yeah, Aaron? Oh, you scraped your chin and the skin fell off? That's, that's why you got to grow a beard. It's like a, it's insulation, so you can't do that. Yeah, so... so what happened to your... Th- oh, you ran over your three-year-old brother on a bike. That was not malicious. It was on accident. But she got hurt, too. It was rough. But now, let me ask you a question, guys. When you got hurt, did you want everybody to look at you? Did you, you want everybody to look at you? Or you did kind of want to, like, don't pay attention to me? It was, it was embarrassing, right? You wanted all the attention? All right. Yeah, Lucia. Blacked out. Boy, that happens. That's rough. Well, so, okay, so I, the, what I was trying to get out of you, none of you answered. That's okay. Is you all did a great job. But a lot of times when we're hurt or we're injured, you know, you don't want anybody to pay attention to you. You kind of want to just like hide in a corner. But Jesus does this. It probably wouldn't pass muster in a lot of like first aid classes. Jesus brings the guy with a broken hand, the withered hand, up in front of everybody. And he, I, I, in my mind, he puts his arm around him and says... Look, is it lawful to save a life or to kill, to do good or to do harm? So Jesus brings this man up in front of everybody and uses him as an object lesson. And the Pharisees say nothing, right? And so Jesus perceives that, my gosh, he's grieved by the hardness of their heart. You see, the Pharisees also, in their Mishnah, in their oral tradition, had all these rules about what level of first aid you could conduct. And so, like, if somebody was dying, you'd go, all right, I could save them. But if somebody had broken a bone, like Lucia, you weren't allowed to set it. 
And so the Pharisees in this interaction are exposed having these incredibly hard hearts because they are committed more to their system and their process than they are to the actual flourishing of God's people, to the actual blessing of God's people. And so the main issue in keeping us from delighting in the Sabbath is the same as the Pharisees. It's this hardness of heart. And so Jesus exposes them as being more concerned with the jots and tittles of their own tradition rather than actually glorifying God and utilizing the Sabbath for what it was intended. You see, again, if you look back in the Old Testament, there's all these prohibitions about not working on the Sabbath. You have the the fourth commandment in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But then, you, you know, you have the story like in Numbers 15 where a guy's out picking up sticks on the Sabbath and he gets executed. So don't pick up sticks on the Sabbath. And then you have another account in Exodus 34, don't kindle a fire. So there's these certain prohibitions about don't do these things, but we have to understand that God's people in the Old Testament weren't just sitting around twiddling their thumbs. They weren't just sitting around kind of like being as still as possible because any movement was considered work. No, the Sabbath was designed not just to not do certain things, but also to do other things. And if you look at Numbers 28, there's this very clear prescription of these are the sacrifices that you offer on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not just a cessation of activity, but rather a focused part of worshiping God the way God intends. And so I use this word delight very particularly. Right? That's a word that's, that has to do with affections. That's a word that has to do with liking something and enjoying something. You're only going to do things that you enjoy when you delight in them. If you don't delight in something, you're not going to do it. If your heart is hard about something, you're going to put it off and, and avoid it because you don't like it. And so delighting in the Sabbath is a matter of worshiping God, of looking to God as creator and redeemer and responding to him in worship. And again, the Pharisees didn't understand this because of the hardness of their hearts. But as we examine this and we look at this, we have to understand that we aren't going to delight in the Sabbath by nature. By nature, our delight is in our own sinful proclivities. Our delight is in going our own way. Our delight is not in going the way God commands, but going in a way suppressing that, doing what we want rather than what God wants. And so you will never delight in the Sabbath unless your heart, your withered, cold, dead heart of stone is regenerated is ripped out and given, you're given a heart of flesh by the Holy Spirit. Unless you have a heart of flesh that knows Jesus, that loves Jesus, you are never going to delight in the Sabbath. So step one, delighting in the Sabbath. If you're not a believer, my goodness, repent and believe. Jesus is ready and stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. Repent and believe and have your heart transformed. But for the Christian... All right, but for the Christian, how do we do this? How do we learn how to delight in the Sabbath? And the, the, the thing that I want to contend with is, look, you need to, we need to learn as God's people to guard our Sundays. Now, in this conversation, you could have a whole other idea about what day is the Sabbath. As Christians, we believe that Sunday is the Sabbath, not Saturday, because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And so as God's people, I think we need to learn what it looks like to guard our Sundays so that we can 
We can do what God commands. We can gather together for worship. We can sing songs to one another. Because when we're singing songs, we're not just singing at a screen. You're saying true things to each other. When you say the words, when you sing these words of the songs that we sing, you are proclaiming to one another the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for you. So that's a reminder for you. We get, as God's people, we get to take communion together. We get to feast on the reality that Jesus died for us, that we might be forgiven. And so we get to prioritize that as, as God's people. We get to sit under the word preached. I, this is a weird thought, but even right now, I'm not just preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself. And so all of these things that we do on Sundays, they're not just things to check off a box. This is stuff that God has given us so that we might be refreshed, reminded, invigorated spiritually. So as God's people, we need to learn how to guard that time so that we can do it. So you have to ask yourself the question, do you actually, as a believer, feel the need for this? Do you feel in your heart and your bones a need for Sabbath rest? Because we can get this twisted so easily as sinful people, even as believers. Right? There's two main ways that we can get this really, really twisted. Um, one way is that you can buy into the lie. You can buy into the lie of our culture that you can just grind, that you can just work, that you can just keep going, that you do not have to stop you can buy into the lie that you have to keep going because you have to keep up with the Joneses, that your kids have to be involved in that sport, but they have to do that extracurricular because if they don't have the resume, they're not going to get into the school they're supposed to. You can buy into the lie that if you don't work, if you don't stop working, if you stop working, the world will stop turning. You can buy into the lie that if you stop working, everything is going to fall apart. And so if that is a lie that you're wrestling with, you won't feel your need for Sabbath. You'll feel your need to keep working because in that posture, God is not sufficient. Only you are sufficient. But the other, the other trap, the other lie that we wrestle with is that we get really prideful and arrogant about how well we keep the Sabbath. We turn into modern-day Pharisees who have our own kind of man-made traditions that say, this is what we're going to do on the Sabbath. We're not going to watch TV. I've heard stories about parents who have special Sabbath toys for their kids because those are the special toys that they can play with so they don't make a mess, so they don't have to do the work of picking up. And so we can buy into the lie that our self-worth and our pride, or our self-worth is in how well we keep the Sabbath. And look at how well we keep the Sabbath. We go to church in the morning. We have special lunch with Christian people in the afternoon. We have church in the evening. The whole day is spent doing Christian things. And doesn't that make us better than those pagan heathens who don't know how to stop working? But that's the same issue as the first one. It's all about who you are and and what you're doing. You're making yourself and your activity the point of the Sabbath rather than understanding that it's God who made you. It's God who made time. It's God who redeemed you. And it's God who redeemed time. So... We need to learn how to delight in a Sabbath because we need to understand that it's not about who you are and what you do, but it's primarily about who God is, who God always was, and who God continues to be. And when you learn that, you learn how to delight in the Sabbath. And there's one kind of more caveat that I would say, one more kind of framework that we can talk about, is that church is a really good thing. It's the gift that God has given. It's the vehicle for kingdom expansion um, on the world in the world today. But people that 
lead churches and, and run churches and work in churches are also fallen people. And so it is a very real thing that people have experienced abuse in church. It's a very real thing that church is hard for some people. It's a very real thing that somebody in church was real nasty to you and hurt your feelings. And so the question is then, how do I Sabbath when church is hard? How do I, how do I rest with God's people when the people at that place that I'm supposed to rest are the people that hurt me, the people that have sinned against me? And, and, and I don't have a perfect answer for that. In fact, if that's your story, I would love to have a longer conversation with you about that. Um, but I would offer three things kind of in this, at this point in the sermon for, for if that's your, that's your framework. Um, one is that a given church that preaches the gospel is not the only church that preaches the gospel. God in his kindness and his grace, there are many gospel-preaching faithful churches out there. And because of where we are in America, you have some options to go where there is less harmful stuff. You have that freedom and option. The second thing is, and this isn't as easy, I, I would learn, as John the Baptist says in John 3.30, to make much of Jesus that he would increase and that you would decrease. Because a lot of times our discomfort in churches is because there's a preference that's not being met. And we have to learn how to, to discern what is something that I would just prefer rather than something that's worth breaking fellowship over. And the third is, is this endeavor as much as you can to find people within the body that you really connect with. You know, even Mercy, which isn't the biggest church, but it's bigger than some, and you're not going to be really friends with everybody in the church the same way that, that you can be if you're in a smaller group. And so I think it's wise as God's people to learn to find those that love you, that can encourage you, that can remind you of these things so that you might rest and Sabbath well. But ultimately, and kind of here's where it all goes, you can only really delight in the Sabbath. You can only really understand who you are in Christ and be refreshed because Jesus already did the work for you. We so often approach the Sabbath like it's a thing that we have to do, but we have to understand as God's people that Jesus already did the work. He lived a perfect life, fully obedient to all of the Torah, in a way that you and I never could. He did the work walking towards the cross, being crucified by sinful men, dying the death that you and I deserve for breaking the Torah. right? And then he was resurrected in power so that we might be born again to a living hope and find rest right now spiritually in this life. And so because Jesus already did the work for you, when you believe in him and trust in him, you can be refreshed regularly and routinely by that grace that saved us, by that grace that sustains us, because he is the creator and redeemer of all things. You see, even in your holiest, most perfect Presbyterianism, you're going to break the Sabbath. And it says that if you break the law, you are cursed. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ became a curse for us. He became a curse for us when his body was hung on the tree so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so because Christ already did that work, you can delight in the Sabbath rest that you were designed to have. You see, Matt Frazier wasn't just right about rest is good for the body. Matt Frazier understood something that Christians need to understand too, is that rest is teleological. Rest is eschatological. 
Rest in the moment is always going to point forward to something in the future. There's a purpose for it beyond just simply doing it. And so when we gather together on the Sabbath to rest and be refreshed in Christ, it's not just about doing it that day. It's not just about doing it the next Sunday. The author of Hebrews says, look, God's people, there's a greater rest that you haven't come into yet. There's a greater rest that you're going to have besides just getting together on a Sunday. There's a greater rest that's going to happen when Jesus comes back and makes all things new so that your broken body that needs sleep is no longer going to have to be broken and be restored. Your broken body is going to be made new and you're going to get a resurrection body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is going to come back and make all things new so that we will have perfect fellowship with Him as God's people forever and for eternity when we don't have to get together once a week to worship and to look forward to that day. We get to be in that day forever with God's people in perfect, perfect harmony. And so as we gather every Sunday, we can look back and remember about what God did for us. We can examine how we structure our own lives. We also have to look forward to that day when Jesus comes back and makes all things new so we can rest and be with him for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good to your people that you would design us to be people who need to rest, but people who can depend on you. We thank you that you are the one who created all things and redeemed us so that we might have a spiritual rest in Christ now. But Lord, we long for you to come back. Jesus, we long for you to come back so that all things would be made new and that we would worship you in eternity. Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.